Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. We're not going to waste any time. So hopefully you're ready to go. I'm ready to go. We're all ready to go. The Lord's ready to go. He never sleeps nor slumbers. So neither are we. Let's bow our head in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, praise you, glorify you. In this season, we are reminded of the incredible gift of salvation, the incredible gift of prophecy fulfilled that we are so clearly shown in your word. And as we celebrate the gift of the first advent, we also continue to look forward to the second. We look forward to it because it uh, brings with it hope, it brings with it new life, it brings with it resurrection, it brings with it um, reunion, it brings with it the, the end of sin nature, it brings with it your wrath, it brings with it judgment, it brings with it the new kingdom, it brings with it the, the complete fulfillment of your history, and with that, we praise you for all of those things. None of those things can we accomplish, none of those things are in, within our power, but they are all within yours. And not only are they within your power, you foreknew them, you predestined them, you control them, and in your sovereignty, you are uh, Lord over all of them. And so as we consider those and we go forward, there should be an excitement in our hearts as we study what you've decided to tell us, what you've revealed to us, what you've uncovered for us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn to Revelation, if you would. We will get into Revelation today. Yeah, amen, I heard. (laughs) Revelation, and you can turn to chapter 1 because we will start there for just a moment to give us a structure. As you turn there, I'm going to define a term for you as uh, I bring this up, hopefully. There, There it is. Whoa, we're at the end. There it is. Uh, So as you turn to Revelation, that word in the Greek, and just to kind of give you an idea, it's not the only time we see it in Scripture. We see it throughout. I'll give you a few other examples that we'll just very briefly look at. But what we see, and the reason I'm having you turn to Revelation is because that's the very first thing you see is this word, apocalypsis or sus, depending on the, the, the way you look at that. And what that simply means is an uncovering, an unveiling. Or a disclosure. Think of it this way. Something that we didn't know before, didn't see before, didn't clearly see before that is now shown to us very clearly. Let me give you an example of this that is not about the end of all things, but is about something that we've now experienced. Very quickly, I know you just got to Revelation, but it's easy to find, right? It's the last book, so it's all right if I take you somewhere else. Go to, just very briefly, let me show you two other examples that we see this similar word. Go to Romans chapter 16. There's a reason for why I'm doing this. Go to Romans chapter 16, and I want to show you something in verse 25. In Paul's doxology of the book of Romans, why I'm taking you here is because this is so, right, the book of Romans is such an essential when it comes to, to soteriology, and why we, how we understand how it is that we're saved, and even brings in the concept of the Jews and the Gentiles and, and how that works. Won't get into all of that today, but it's important to see how Paul uses this word. Look at this, Romans 16, verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you, of course he's talking about the Lord, According to my gospel, it's not Paul's personal gospel, but it's the gospel that saved him, the gospel he's delivering, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
Look at this. According to the apocalypsis, apocalypsus, either way, of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. The mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the church. The mystery of how you and I got saved. That was, um, that was something really hard as we've studied through and we've kind of gone through Jesus teaching to his own countrymen. Very difficult for them to understand and grasp this idea of the gospel being available to the Jew and to the Gentile by grace through faith in Christ alone in his finished work on the cross alone. That was a mystery. Yes, it was revealed through Isaiah and the prophets, but it was difficult to understand. And it was, as we look at it, especially as believers who, not only has it been revealed, but the veil has been lifted, and we have the insight of the Holy Spirit and the sight of the Holy Spirit, that these are spiritually discerned. Not only has it been unveiled, but it's really been cleared up for us. There's a clarity that we have because of the Holy Spirit. And we see that same word used with regards to our salvation. Kind of neat, right? And so go forward just a little bit. Didn't even want to spend this much time, but I think it's important. To Galatians. And when we look at this, and we look at how Paul is talking about this again, in Galatians chapter 1, and Paul talks about how he received his information. And I think this is important as well because we look at all Scripture and it's the same. It's God-breathed. It comes through the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 12. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, starting in verse 11 so that you understand we're still talking about the gospel. For I would have, have you know, brothers, believers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Very similar to what I just said about how he talked about Paul taking possession of the gospel, but it's not his For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through apocalypsis, apocalypsos, that I received it as a revelation and unveiling of Jesus Christ. He was taught personally. Not only did he see Christ on the road to Damascus, and it was was this amazing, magical, you know, supernatural event, but most believe Paul is talking here that God spoke to him, taught him personally as he is carried along and he was in the Spirit being taught directly from Jesus Christ. And we usually go to this passage to understand that. There is a large gap in Paul's ministry before he really starts in his missionary journeys, and in part even before he is in engaging with the other apostles, where I, uh, we believe Christ was teaching him personally. But revelation, it was unveiled, it was, it was now seen. What was not seen is now seen. All right, back to Revelation So that's the disclosure, that's the unveiling. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Here we're going to get a structure. I'll bring this up on the screen, but I'd like you to turn there because we're going to be in Revelation today. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Here's what we see out of John. He gives us a structure. Jesus tells him this, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these things or after this. What we have here is a very basic outline for how the book of Revelation is going to be laid out for us or written. So what is seen is chapter 1. What is or things that are, that is the churches, that is chapters 2 and 3, and we'll unpack that just a little bit today, but not much. We've covered that very thoroughly a few years ago. And then what we're going to talk about here today, this next section, which is the longest of them, by the way. You'll notice that's chapter 4 through 22. The longest of these sections is after these things. 
And, and we'll look at that, and we'll see that same language, by the way, the after these things language. We'll unpack that here in just a moment. We'll see that same language used in chapter 4. That, so we know that we're in this section. Now, before we get any further, you may be wondering, why is there so much in this section compared to the others? Well, I'll tell you why in part. The entire, entirety of the Bible up to this point, honestly, truth be told, has to do with what has been seen and what is. Here's what I mean by that. The Old Testament and even into the New Testament, the, the, what, Paul, or excuse me, what John sees in chapter 1 is the glory and magnificent presence of God himself. And we are, we are given an incredible description of who God is throughout the Old and New Testament. And, and so not only is John recapping that and is he tapping into the Old Testament descriptions that we see so clearly articulated by Ezekiel and Isaiah, he does the, and Daniel, we're going to see that as we go forward. And, and so he talks about the incredible glories of God, which we'll look at here in a moment, but we see that so, so well articulated in, in Scripture. We also see the R, this, this section about the churches, the entire New Testament, the epistles are for you and for I, for us to, to use and apply in our lives. And as we look at those seven churches, although they were very specific seven churches, they were for you and I to take practical application from, too. But these ne this next section, which we get more information from John about this than in any other writer in the New Testament, this is really brand new. It taps into things that we have, that, that we've seen, but he explains them a little bit more. So that's the reason why I think we're a little bit heavier on that third section if that makes any sense. And that's just my opinion. So you don't have to take that as scripture, but that's how I've looked at that. All right, let's look at this very first section, the things that you have seen. Now, remember, John has this, he's privy to this. John not only has seen in chapter one in the spirit, this incredible supernatural thing where he's able to see Christ glorified. He saw Christ in human form and glorified and it resurrected and and got to write about that, as we've been studying for over a year in John, haven't we? And John got to tell us that. That's not what this is dealing with. This is his revelation in chapter 1. And we're not, you can look at this kind of as I'm, I'm going, I kind of just went through the highlights. As I went through, you could have done the same thing as I made this particular slide. What did he see supernaturally? Here's, here's what John saw. And before I run through this, I'm going to give you another opinion. And, and there's going to be a lot of these here and there. Why is this first? Well, I think this goes back to the, the connection I made between Pastor Kevin's series and, and my series. That it's really important if you're going to embrace anything that comes from Scripture is that the very first thing you understand is the fear of the Lord. That, that you grasp that. And this whole book starts with John and his reaction to what he saw and we'll get to that in just a moment. But here's just some highlights from chapter 1. A brief intro and then a glorified Christ vision. Here's what he sees. A loud voice like a roaring of many waters. Also like a trumpet, he describes it. I think it's potentially the same voice. And, and we'll connect that to the rapture here in a few weeks from now. Standing in the midst of his church, we see seven golden lampstands. The lamp stands being the church, and he's standing amongst them. That's going to be important going forward as well. He's wearing a long robe with a golden sash kind of going across his chest. His hair is white like wool or snow. It's, it's dynamic. 
eyes like a flame of fire. So this isn't the same Jesus he saw in human form, although potentially it's very similar to what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, potentially. But a very impressive and intimidating sight, feet like burnished bronze, and keep in mind, I think this is very literal, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. This is an impressive sight. What, what was John's reaction to that? When he saw it, he fell at Christ's feet as though, not thought, as though dead. I was, on, I was heavily medicated the last couple days, so if there's a few, I've got some sinus issues going on. As though dead. He fell on his face as though dead. You know what this is reminiscent of? When the angels showed up at the resurrection at the tomb and the, the soldiers couldn't even move. I think it was something like that. And I think this is how it starts to get you an idea of what John was experiencing before he ever wrote a single word about this. This is what he saw. This is what he saw. Think of Isaiah when he saw Christ in the throne room, Isaiah chapter 6. We talked about this in John 12. And it said that Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, of glory of Christ. And I believe that that Isaiah 6 passage is Christ on his throne, same throne room, Remember, seated at the right hand of God the Father. They are intertwined. We've been talking about the Trinity. We're going to see the Trinity involved in this too. But he was so impressed with this, Isaiah, that he was ruined, right? And then he was ready. John's ruined. John's as if dead. And now he's ready to write. Now he's ready to, to tell us what's coming next. Kind of an impressive scene. And um, as we look at that, we've already spent some time on that. All right. Chapter 2 and 3, this is the things that are, and I'm going to go real quick through this, because if you really want the thorough study, we've done this already, but I'm going to hustle through this, and I know some of you are like, no, spend some time. We can't spend any time on this. We've got to move forward. And um, let me just take this moment, to t- and I've mentioned this to a few of you. I may, this may seem like I'm get, doing a thorough job on this. I'm really not. This is to, to get your taste buds activated. You're going to want to dig deeper. As I go through this, you're going to find thinking, he should have spent more time on that. He should have gone faster through that. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. And I'd say, good, you should dig deeper. Remember week one, what is this going to do? What's one of the blessings that come with this? We're going to dig deeper. And you can do that all week long. I have a puny little 45 minutes, maybe 50, you know, depending on the... That's it. So dig deeper as you go through this. All right, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this is the, to the churches. And these are specific Asian, Asia Minor churches. I think he intentionally picked them because they were a nice microcosm of what he knew we would be like and the struggles we would have, the strengths that we would have, the weaknesses that we would have. But they are to the churches in general. And all of these are to the, and I, I preached on this or taught on this a few years ago, The conquerors or overcomers. The true believer is the one who endures to the end because Christ makes him endure. That's by grace, by the way. It's not because you're so strong and tough and you can endure to the end. The true believer endures to the end because you're held by Jesus. And by grace you can do that in every step you take. But it's a mark of a true believer, and John continually uses it here. He uses it in 1 and 2 John as well. But this definition that we see here is the overcomer, and there are promises made And we had a structure to this, by the way. If you remember when we went through this, the church was addressed. There was a description of Christ, a very cool description of Christ in each one of those. Some of them tapping back to chapter 1. A commendation, what did they do right? A rebuke, what did they do wrong? With the exception of Philadelphia. 
encouragement to change and a consequent for rebellion, appeal to listen, and then a, tr- a promise to the true believer. Just as a kind of a real quick review, and by the way, these slides will be up on, on the uh, website through my uh, message if you want to look at these later. I know sometimes you might want to run this fast or take a picture, but it'll all be up there. Here are some of those promises. Incredible promises, by the way, that are to, to the believers in these churches, but they are to you too. They are to you too, and these are important. We're going to come back to a few of these later today. Uh, If we have time, it may end up being next week as we transition into our role in what John is about to see. But these seven churches had promises made to them that will be promises extended to you, promises like eternal life, promises like reigning with Christ, promises like not facing God's wrath and the eternal damnation of of uh, of hell, this eternal security, this idea, the idea of being taken from earth before the tribulation. These promises extend to every believer, and these were given in that second section. So the commendation, the rebuke, these things we can apply to our lives, so many great pieces of, of, of conviction for us in that section. So that's what we see. Now I want us to go, as we look at this, it says... I mentioned we're going to see a connection here as we get into the third section. There's a particular Greek phrase here, metatauta. I'm going to default to my guys that know this better than that, but that's that term after these things. And I want you to turn to chapter 4 real quick, and I want you to notice something. As we transition into chapter 4, and we'll have to go back to chapter 3 for just a second. I'll bring it up on the screen, but chapter 4, look at, the, look at this particular connection. After this, or after these things, metatauta, again, that same exact Greek phrase that we see John using in 119 for that third section, we can clearly see that's the first thing he says here. He's trying to give us an indication we're transitioning into this third piece. So it says here very clearly, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet. Again, we hear that same connection we saw in chapter 1. Speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Again, same phrase, metatauta, after these things. So after what things? Well, the first section, which is what is. What Jesus is, what God the Father is, what the Trinity is, what what the Godhead is that we've been studying forever, but then what he saw, and when I say forever, from the beginning of God's word till now, the, the Old Testament into the New, but what, what John saw in chapter 1, then what is, the things that are right now for the churches, the church age, but after the church age ends, after these things. So that's what we see. Okay, so that's what chapter 4 starts with. So we know we're in that section. We know that structure. So we look at this basic structure. This is a basic structure of this last third section. Okay, so I know I'm kind of hustling through this, but chapter 4 through chapter 22, and this is super general. Okay, there's other better, even further and more more, um, complicated breakdowns, but this is a very basic one. Okay, so chapter 4 and 5, which is what we're going to cover in the next several weeks, is, and maybe three weeks, although we don't have Sunday school for the next two, so it's going to go into next year. Before the tribulation begins, it's yet future, okay, this is still yet future, and it's yet future that you will experience, but it's events that are happening in heaven. 
Not down here on planet earth, but in heaven, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm. And then we transition from 6 through 19, events that happen during the tribulation period, the seven-year period of God's judgment on the earth, his wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord. There are very many different types of terms that we use for this. And then the last section is the events after the tribulation. Now, this includes the eternal state, but it's also the millennial kingdom. The eternal state comes after the millennial kingdom, and I'll show you a very brief structure of what that looks like. So the eternal state isn't the only thing that we see here, but it is a very basic understanding of what we're about to see. So right before the tribulation, all yet future, during the tribulation, and the things that happen after the battle of Armageddon, the end of the tribulation, which would include the millennial kingdom and then the eternal state. Okay, so it's not just the eternal state. Uh, the reason I use this one, he said, this one's so old. This is like, a, you could have found a fancier one. I have fancier ones. Here's why I'm using this one. Uh, many of you know, well, um, Brock, your parents are down in Bibleville sometimes. Uh, DeYoung did a sermon series in Bibleville, which is where my parents lived for 26 years. And Brock's parents, they, the Lewises, they live uh, in that area and go down there. And uh, I, this was probably 20 years ago, and I was talking, my dad was still alive, my parents were still there, and I said, hey, he just came and did a series, did he give you any kind of a thing, and you know, like to kind of break this down, like some sort of a structure, and he said, as a matter of fact, he did, he faxed this to me, <laughs> so I just had to use it, because it's just cool, and it reminds me of my dad, but I took this fax that was in my, my old Bible, and then I scanned it and put it in here for us to see today, and it just gives me a good feeling. But that's why it looks a little rough. But that's from DeYoung. He put this together. Anyway, just to kind of give you an understanding of the structure of what we're looking at here. If you look here, this is things that are happening in heaven. Satan is the prince and the power of the air, as we see here. And these are the things that are on earth. Right here, I've told you already. I'm already showing you my cards, and we'll talk about this next time. But... The rapture of the church, I believe, happens before the tribulation begins. This is not the time of the church's trouble. Jesus is not in the business of beating up his bride for seven years before he marries her and takes her to the, uh, the, the, uh, the celebration in heaven. I don't believe that that's the case. So what we see here is the rapture, and we'll talk about the reasons for that as we go forward. And in heaven, then, we see things happening. We're going to be in the throne room, as we'll see today, but we'll see the judgment seat of Christ. We'll also see, I believe, that this marriage celebration that we'll look at, this wedding feast that we'll look at going forward as well. But as that tribulation begins, it's, it's divided into three parts, or two parts, excuse me. The first three and a half years, as Daniel gives us the very exact days of that, and then the second three and a half years. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. As we go forward through this, the battle of Armageddon takes place as Christ's second coming. We will return with him. And then we see this 1,000-year reign of Christ and then the new heaven and new earth. This is what we would call the eternal state. This is where we have this great white throne judgment. The, the judgment of the believer is the judgment seat of Christ. Right here, or the Bema judgment. And we've discussed that here a few times. I'll refer back to this a few times. This is kind of a rough copy, but that's the reason why I use that one. It's a, there's a sentimentality for it, and how many times do you use a fax this day and age? Not very often. All right, going back to this. Let's get back to our section here of what we're talking about. What are we going to look at in chapter 4 and 5? Really, honestly, this is what, it's going to answer two questions, these two questions. 
from where will the judgment come and from who? From whom is the judgment going to come? Where is it coming from and from whom? And I'll say this, the reason why I brought this up here is because it's really important to understand because we live in a day and age where people don't think God is worthy or has the right to do certain things. You'll hear people say, how could God, and then fill in the blank. How could a good God, and then fill in the blank. Let me tell you something, God has every right. Because what we're going to see in chapter 4 and 5 is maybe a very generalization of this, but God the Father maybe articulated and described in chapter 4, and God the Son articulated and described in chapter 5. One, the Creator, and of course, we know the Son is responsible for creation too, right? John tells us that. We see that in Colossians as well. They are intertwined. But we also see this incredible dynamic scene that Daniel describes as the Ancient of Days passing on this authority to the Son of Man, right? Incredible stuff. We see a very similar thing that John does here in chapter 4 and 5. Why do I say that? Well, God's the creator. He has a right because he created you. He's also the redeemer. He has a right because he redeemed you. He has a right. He has every right. He has the only right to judge and to bring wrath and to do exactly what he has always said he would do, which is to make this place right again. He has the right to do that. I'd like to go back for just a second, if you're in your Bible still in Revelation, go back to Revelation chapter 3 for just, this is the end, the very end of this kind of these letters before we get this, okay, now this is what must take place after this, the Metatauta. But if you look at the very end of this and, you know, close to the very end of this, chapter 3, as he's, <clears throat> he's articulating this last letter to Laodicea, he says this, and it's up on the screen, but you see it too. He who overcomes, the true believer, the true believer, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. This is Jesus speaking. As also, I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay, so we see the connection between the father and the son. They have the authority and they have the right. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. We have the Holy Spirit involved in this too. As a matter of fact, in chapter four, we're going to see right away, it is the seven spirits, which just means the completeness of it. And if I have time, I'll articulate that, the perfection of it. Matter of fact, let me just say it now in case I don't get to it. You know, right now in our, in our day and age as we live in the church age, you and I as believers, anyone in here who is in Christ, the Holy Spirit is within you right now. And as you walk and talk and breathe and interact with the, the world, you are, as Pastor Kevin has often said, you have these two choices on the shelf, right? And the eternal or, or the temporal, me, or am I going to serve the Lord? And every time we serve the Lord, it's the Holy Spirit working through us. Every time we resist that, we are, we are pushing him back. We are watering down the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We can, we can grieve him right now, can't we? We can do that. As a matter of fact, we can not listen to him right now. We can't do the work that he wants to do in us, and we can miss out on the blessing that comes with serving the Lord fully, wholeheartedly. And that's what the Holy Spirit's constantly doing in us. Opportunities to preach the gospel, opportunities to share the hope that we have within us. The Holy Spirit's constantly getting us, convicting us to do that. Helping us to understand his word every time we don't pick this up when we should. And we're not, in, it, these things that we can, but imagine now, and I'm just going to kind of jump the gun here a little bit. Because what we're going to see in chapter 4, I believe we're going to be there to see it. 
I'm going to try to make that argument in the next two weeks, next two Sunday schools, that we're going to be there to see it. This future event, you're going to be there. As a matter of fact, I believe that you'll, when you experience this as a church, you're going to say, oh, I remember talking about this. I remember reading about this. I was, I was there before I was there. This is a deja vu all over again. I believe that that's what's going to happen here because I believe we're going to be in this moment that John has taken to. But as we go through chapter 4 and 5, but imagine this. I'm saying all of this for this reason. The, the, it's it's going to tell us here in chapter 4, very early in, in verses 5 and 6, the seven spirits of God. The perfect version. Not that Christ and the Holy Spirit isn't perfect already, but he's in us and we're imperfect. But when we're there, no more sin nature. We won't grieve him anymore. We won't suppress him anymore. We won't, we won't, he won't, we won't, not listen to him anymore. We won't not heed his conviction anymore. We won't not understand him anymore. Those things won't happen anymore. He's like flying high because his church is with him and they're perfected and they're glorified and we're in his presence and he's in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Godhead is all one and we're there with him. Anyway, just jumping ahead a little bit. But we see the Trinity right off the bat just as Pastor James has been talking about this importance of the Trinity that we see. All right, let's get to this futurely heavenly scene. The future heavenly scene. Now, heaven exists. The throne room as we see it or going to see it, that exists right now. Any of your loved ones who have gone on, who have passed on, who have put their faith in Christ, can see this certainly see this scene. But the events that are about to take place here, I believe, are in this place, but they are yet future so what does he see? Let's get back to Revelation chapter 4. Wow, my time has flown. Revelation chapter 4. I kind of knew this might happen, but not this bad. Revelation chapter 4. After these things, verse 2. So he's told to come up here. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So we see here God's throne, both Father and Son, and the worthiness to judge as the Creator and Redeemer. As I mentioned earlier, this is what I was supposed to bring up earlier, and I didn't. So back to this scene. 1, 6 through 8, John is taken into, the hev- into heaven in the near future. I say near future because we as believers believe in an imminent return of Christ for his church. Okay? We believe that this could happen before I finish this Sunday school lesson, and I pray that it would. I, I pray that it would. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Maybe, maybe that would happen today. We believe that, and when I say in the future, in the near future is what I should have written, is because it could be something that this, this whole event, these cycle, the cycle of events could happen any moment. What John sees in heaven in the future, and then God on his throne, including what is around him and who is there with him. Okay? And that's important as we go forward looking at this. So a very brief outline of what we'll be talking about here in the next two Sunday schools is who's on the throne. This one's easy, but we're going to look at it anyway because it's so impressive. Who's on the throne, what is surrounding the throne, what is coming out of the throne, what's before the throne, and then who's around it. So who's sitting around it or what's sitting around it. And so that's kind of the basic structure. Don't know how far we'll get with this today, but we're going to get as far as I can get as the Lord leads. All right, first thing I want to talk about is we see here, if we go back to the text, it says, at once I was in the Spirit. Now, at once is very similar to immediately. Let me just answer a question that might be in your head, or maybe you've heard. Is this a reference with John being taken, snatched away, 
sounds a little like the rapture, to the rapture of the church. I'll say no, I don't think it is. But yes, it kind of is because I think we're going to be here and I think the rapture has already taken place. But this is an event that happens to John. It's very similar to, in my opinion, very similar to what happened to Paul. When Paul was taken, and, and we'll look at that here in just a moment, it's similar. I think it's type, there's a typology to it. But I also would say that it may not be even physical. It could be spiritual. In the spirit could mean a couple things. Let me explain that very quickly. At once I was in the spirit. Okay? At once he was, instantly he was in the spirit. I, I tend to look at that and read that. MacArthur also does. He believes that it's a, uh, as Paul said, I don't know, in the body or out of the body, I don't know. I think this is telling us it was maybe out of the body probably. Some take this and say he physically was taken. I would be okay with either one because this in the spirit could possibly be what Paul's talking about here. He's caught up. That is harpazo, that word that we're going to use when we study here next week, the rapture of the church. Harpazo is where we get the word harpoon. And if you know what a harpoon does, it stabs into something and snatches it back right out of the water. It's quick, it's a kidnapping, it's taken right away. He's caught up into paradise, but he says, I don't know if that's in the body or out of the body. I think very similar here, interestingly enough, Paul is not allowed to talk about what he hears. He, he's not allowed to. Maybe he had that separated and he wanted the timing. He wanted John to talk about what he saw here. Uh, remember, Ezekiel is able to talk about what he sees. Isaiah is able to talk about it. Daniel's able to talk, John is. But Paul's not able to talk about this. God tells him not to. Maybe he wants him to hyper-focus on something else. Keep in mind, the text here, the context of the text is what conclusion does Paul come to? My grace is sufficient for you, right? He was being humbled in this situation. So anyway, I think maybe this is the same thing. But it could also be this. In the Spirit could mean just the way all the writers of the New Testament received their revelation is that it came from the Spirit. Because of the sake of time, we just don't have the ability to go to these passages. What are these is that all Scripture is God-breathed. That it doesn't come from man's own will or from his own interpretation. That's what Peter says. That's what Paul says to Timothy. That this is all inspired by God. This text could indicate that. That's still true, isn't it? Because this came from the Almighty God. It came from the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is, excuse me, John is seeing here is inspired. And it's not his own interpretation. He's told what to write. He's told what he's seeing and that he needs to write this down. So is he in the spirit? Is he bodily there? You can debate about that. You can dig in deeper. I think he's in the spirit there. I don't think he's physically there. I don't think that matters because it's very vivid for him. Remember, chapter 1, he felt like he was a dead man. He felt like he was physically there. Um, I think that we have too many examples of that where these men, Peter had that same experience uh, with the, uh, at uh, Simon the Tanner's house. And I, it was very real to him. I, I don't know that we need to separate those or, or even debate about that. It's not the rapture. It's typology of the rapture. I think the rapture is certainly referenced in a roundabout way, as we'll see going forward. But it could mean that too. Either way, he's there and he's experiencing it. And what does he see? He sees right off the bat one seated on the throne. And here's what it says. 
as we look at this going forward. At once I was in the spirit, build a throne stood in heaven, one seated on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow. They had the appearance of emerald. All right, let's describe these things or look at these things. Now, we have a similar thing, and we won't go to these today, but just for your own reference, remember, tap into these things. Go to these things, and, and we, we may look at these as we go forward. We have three very similar situations. I've referenced these already today. We're both Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. All three of them were able to be in the same throne room, and there are very similar descriptions. Now, I will say that there is a slightly different perspective Ezekiel has on this description of the rainbow. That could be perspective, just like the Gospels have different perspectives. And what I mean by that is the, the color in which he sees. We think of a rainbow and we think of multicolors. What we just read here is that it has an emerald taste to it. I'll explain that here in a moment, at least my interpretation of what that might be. I think Isaiah's vision, as I shared with you when I went through John 12, I think that has to do with Christ, that he was seeing Christ on his throne simply because of the words that John uses here, that he saw his glory or the glory of Christ seated on the throne. But we see this similar stuff in the Old Testament, consistent. Why I bring this up is God doesn't change. If you were to die today, and you might, so make sure that by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that you are saved, because it could happen today. Um, some crazy truck drivers out there could run into you. You never know. Um, while they're working on their Bible lesson, you just never know. You can be careful. But be sure of your eternal security you will see the same throne room. You will be in the presence of the Lord. You'll be able to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But there is some depth to this. And so as John gives four in chapter 4 and 5 in Revelation, we get a, a more broad view, broader view of this. Anyway, these are the passages that are very similar to what we're seeing here. But here's what he says. He says that the appearance is like jasper and carnelian. Very interesting here because we see this this. Uh, this term jasper, in the ancient, it, the description is that I get from the Bible dictionary, opaque, translucent, crystalline quartz of differing colors, and especially shades of green, which we see with the emerald here later on. But possibly the jasper of ancient times may actually have been transparent. Why do we get that? Well, from the context we get that. Revelation chapter 21 describing the New Jerusalem and the elements of the New Jerusalem and the foundations and the gemstones used. Look at how this same exact Greek word of jasper is used. It's clear as crystal. So I think that this particular jasper is clear, translucent. You can see right through it. That's what that is. Okay? But the carnelian, as we go forward, the sardis, excuse me, as we go forward, is this. It's ruby red. It's a, it's a bright red, blood red. Two little interpretations of this that I found that I think are legitimate. As we look at this one, as we think of this as what John is seeing and the colors that are coming from the throne, coming from the one sitting on the throne, the Father, as he sits there, and it, as he's, he's, he's in his glory, the red sardius may speak of God as Redeemer. And that's a great interpretation. The one who provided a blood sacrifice. Remember, without the... The shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's an important thing. And of course, this is part of the plan of salvation. So God's glory, he's glorified in that he's a redeemer. Remember, these go back to why he's worthy. 
I think that's one good interpretation. I think the other one that may be even more prevalent in this moment because we are, we are, we are in a kind of the calm, believe it or not, this is a calm before the storm, but it's an intimidating calm. We see possibly this, that it may speak of God's fury and his wrath that is coming. And I, this you see in commentaries even more often, that this is potentially why this bright red, this crimson red, it's a violent type of thing that John sees. Remember, as he's seeing the glory of Christ and he's in the throne room, it's an intimidating thing. Here's one more thing, just one more thing that I think is kind of fascinating. Another commentary says this, Jasper and Sardius were the first and last of the 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest. Just kind of interesting. And they represent the first and the last of the tribes of Israel. So Reuben and Benjamin. Why does that matter? Because he hasn't forgot about Israel either. Because he hasn't forgot about Israel either. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not because he hates Israel. It's not because he's going to consume Israel. Remember, that's never going to happen. He's going to bring Israel to their knees. And he's going to bring them to salvation. And they are going to look at the one in whom they pierced. And they're going to be saved. And that's going to be an incredible moment. So that's another, yet a third reason maybe for those colors. But John is experiencing all of this. Tough interpretation. Here's MacArthur's take on this. The stone itself was a blood red ruby stone, fiery bright. It speaks of the blazing, fiery nature of God's wrath and fury. I concur. John sees the throne and it's not a peaceful vision. It's not a comforting vision. It's a flashing, brilliant, glorious, splendorous, splendorous, magnificent, wrathful kind of frightening experience as it must have been for Ezekiel when he fell on his face. Remember those connections. As it must have been for Isaiah when he fell on his face, the appearance of the Almighty God was clear and brilliant and blazing and fiery. I I think that's so important, and you're going to see this. I really believe in glorified form you will see this, and you're going to see and experience this. This is yet future, but you're going to be in that same spot that John is. We'll get to that next week or next time. But all right, what's around it? What's around or surrounding the throne? Here's what we see. As we look at that text, it talks about this rainbow. And this throne, there's a rainbow. And I mentioned earlier, rainbows immediately, I know what you think. You're thinking the flood. Good, you should. Because what did God do when he, when he destroyed the earth and judged the earth? He sent a rainbow to remind us he will never do that again. Now, he didn't promise he wouldn't judge the earth again. He just said he wouldn't do it that way again. So I think that's a reference to that. Judgment's coming again, but I won't do it with a flood. This time it's going to be through fire. Okay, and and I think there's a reason for that rainbow. Ezekiel sees a rainbow, and he sees a multicolored rainbow. Here he sees one of emerald. Now, I think this is fascinating. I dug into this a little bit. The term emerald here in Scripture is live coal. That's how it's translated sometimes. And it's oftentimes associated with everlasting life or new birth. Uh, Justin prayed this morning with the uh, elders, and I almost said to him, have you been reading my notes? Because when we we come here and when John comes here and he he is encountered by the incredible power and majesty and future wrath, the, the, the potential, and, and at the moment, at this moment in future history, it, it's, it's being held back for just a moment of God, the power of God. What the believer's going to see is he saved me from that wrath. He's going to see, and you're going to see, and I believe you're going to be there, and we'll unpack that next time, but the, you're going to see and you're going to experience that, whew, I'm glad I'm not on the business end of that. And it's only because of the blood of the lamb that I'm not. 
That's what you're going to see, and that, that's going to be pure worship, isn't it? It should be today. Like, as you see this and you feel this, this is everlasting life. This rainbow, a reminder, why wrath is coming, but you've been saved from it. It's a reminder of a different type of judgment, but that the lamb was slain and was resurrected, and he was resurrected for you. A couple other things as we go forward, and I think what's coming out of the throne is important. Notice what it says in verse 5. I'm jumping around a little bit, but just for the sake, I kind of want to just this week talk about what's going on around. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. More emphasis on what's coming, right? Just it's building up. The pressure is building. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. I referenced that earlier, the perfection of the Holy Spirit there. The Son, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all present. Interesting passage, it came across very similar language, but in the Old Testament, when Elihu was speaking of God's judgment um, in response to what was going on with Job, here's what he says. I love this because it's kind of, it's very descriptive of this. Speaking of God's judgment, at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Similar reaction. Keep listening to thunder, the thunder of his voice, speaking of God, and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. Whew, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? But that's our God. That's what John's seeing. It's what is, via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elihu wrote about God and his judgment. He speaks it, and it happens, and I think that that is emanating from this throne in this moment. Why? Because what's going to happen, what we're going to be studying, is this. Absolute massive destruction. By the way, this was also facts. I had to throw that up there. Same thing. <laughs> it was just this old school. Love it. But absolute destruction on the earth that we will talk about in detail. And it's real, and it's going to happen, and it's like something that has never happened on earth before. According to Jesus' own words, the worst time in human history that if he didn't cut short, there wouldn't be anybody living. Okay, that's how bad it will be. And then one more thing. Yep, one more thing. Before the throne. Interesting. It says before the throne, 6a, it says this. Before the throne, there was, were, was as it were, so it kind of looks like, a sea of glass like crystal. Interesting. I wish I could unpack this a little bit more. We have an interesting situation in Exodus 24 where God summons Moses, Aaron, Nabed, Abihu, and some of the elders. We're going to talk about that next time. But the elders, and I've skipped, you noticed I've skipped the elders part. We're going to get to that next week. And um, there's a reason for that. Uh, but he summons them to come up to the, into his presence on Mount Sinai. And notice what it says. They saw God of Israel. Remember, you can't look at God or you'd be consumed. Most think that they were just looking at his feet, okay? And it says, they were under his feet as it were, as it were. It's very similar, right? A pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven of clearness. Similar thing here, okay? That's a cool little connection to this that found in the Old Testament. But I think there's another connection. And we're going to end with this. This goes right back to our salvation. Remember, I believe you're going to be here. If you're in Christ, I believe you're going to see this. This is going to be something that's going to come to mind. Notice this. Look at this connection. 
In 1 Kings 7, and I, I, if you were in my seventh grade Bible class that I taught for many years, I used to have them memorize and put the structure of the tabernacle and the temple and where all the different elements were and the typology there and how Christ fulfilled all these things. One of the elements of the temple and tabernacle is the water basin. And this was ceremonially what the, the priests had to wash, ceremonially wash before they came into the presence of the Lord. Okay? Now, we, of course, no longer have to do that. We no longer have to do that because Christ has washed our sins away. He's cleansed you, but you still have to go through the water. Interesting here, okay? Notice what it is called. This is, Dave, this is as we look at the Solomon's temple, not the tabernacle. Notice they call this a sea of cast metal. That it's not the water basin here. It's not the laver. That's other words that they use in the Old Testament for this same, this same water. But he calls it the sea here. And I think there's some symbolism in, in front of the throne. In order for us to approach this throne, you got to go through that cleansing. you got to approach it through Christ. Once again, everything we see in the temple and the tabernacle, I could do a whole Sunday school lesson on that. I'm not going to. I could. Jesus fulfills it. From the, the, the showbread, from the menorah, okay, from the Holy of Holies, from the Ark of the Covenant, the whole entire temple. He is the temple. Okay, there won't be a temple in the future because he's the temple, because he is the light and there won't be need for light. We'll be in his presence, but I won't, I won't get into it. But this will also be fulfilled. You can come into the presence of God because he's washed you, and that's in front of it. Isn't that cool that you can approach it? Yeah, it's clu- it, I think it's real. I think it's something that he visually sees. We saw that in Exodus. You see a very similar thing in Ezekiel, by the way. It's above these uh, seraphim, and it's a, it's a clear crystal base that the throne is sitting on. I think that's the same thing he sees. But the symbolism of salvation here, isn't that amazing that we see that, and yet it all connects because God's always the same. He's always the same. I've gone way over. But that's a good setup for next, next time when we see who's there, and it's these 24 elders. And hmm, I wonder who those guys are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and how deep it is and how clean it is and how, how great that you've given us this information ahead of time. I pray that there's an excitement in all of us and that it isn't just clinical and it isn't just academic but that this impacts us, that we have a very similar reaction to Isaiah and John and Ezekiel when we're in your presence and you've taken us there today, that we fear you and we obey you. And as we go through this week and we hear your, your word taught and preached here in the next hour, that we listen intently, same word, same revelation given to us so that our life is now different and holy, separate, set apart, so that we can honor you as your ambassadors here on earth. And for those who are still not yet saved, I pray that this wrecks them brings them to their knees, and that they cry out for mercy, not wanting to feel the wrath that is yet to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.